Hey, 1 Timothy, so take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy. Uh, If you can't find it, it's on page 1,626 of my Bible. And um, it's the end of the book, end of the letter. Paul is a much older man who's been in ministry a long, long time. And he is uh, writing this letter to Timothy, who is his protege, his, his really son in every sense of that word, in the faith and in ministry. And he's placed Timothy in this first church there in Ephesus. And Ephesus is quite a city in Turkey. Uh, it was a very regional city, a very important city of, of commerce and, and industry and uh, culture in the Roman world. And um, I was watching something on, uh, on, on Amazon Prime the other night about the Roman world and Ephesus. And, you know, when, a couple of weeks ago, we talked about uh, slaves and masters. It said as many as, as maybe 30, 45% of the population of Ephesus was, was servants and slaves. So, uh, that's really an interesting kind of thing. I understood when I watched that, and and uh, I'm, I'm a history geek anyway, so that's just the way it is. But it was really interesting to see that and understand the context in which Paul's writing this letter. It's a it's a place where there's some very wealthy people, some very poor people. It's an economy that's growing quite a bit, and this church where where Timothy is serving is a church that's got some problems in it and some dysfunction in it. And the reason it has problems and dysfunction in it is because I don't know. It has people in it, and uh, I don't know about you, but I'm I'm pretty dysfunctional most of the time. You know, I'm I've, I've got a lot of issues in my life, and uh, you probably do too. So we just multiply all that dysfunction, all those issues, by however many people show up here uh, in gathered worship and are part of our church. And so uh, this side of heaven, we're all perfect. We got issues. We got problems. But there are ways in which we can deal with those appropriately, that we can grow to be more like Christ and to love one another more and to be an example to the world of how to get along and how to be gentle and how to be peaceful. And that's what Paul is talking about to Timothy here. He's encouraging Timothy to remain at Ephesus. Remember, the whole letter began with him saying, don't leave. I want you to stay there. I know you're thinking of leaving, but don't leave. Remain at Ephesus. And he says, remain there so you teach sound doctrine." As I said, sometimes we think, well, that sounds kind of boring. You're going to teach sound doctrine. He probably just needs to knock some heads together and get rid of some people and make them straighten up and act right. But Paul is abundantly clear that the reason they're not acting right is they don't understand the truth. And you'll teach the truth and let them see the glory of the truth. And doctrine's not a word to be afraid of. It's not something that's boring. I mean, it's doctrine is truth. It's information. It transforms us. He says, so teach that. So we're now we've gone through this whole letter, and we're at the very end of it. We've got a couple more weeks, and then we're going to move into probably look at the life of Jonah. So in chapter 6, uh, last week we spent our entire time talking about servants and masters and what that meant in that first century. But today we're going to look at uh, chapter 6, and we'll begin reading with verse 3. If anyone teaches false doctrine... And does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with teaching that promotes godliness. He is conceited and understands nothing, but has an unhealthy interest in disputes and arguments over words. For these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicions, and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth, who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain, rather, but godliness with contentment is great gain. So here, he, he begins here by, by talking about the fact that people who are conceited uh, understand nothing. They'd like to get in disputes. They'd like to get into arguments. You know people like that. Some of you are a person like that, right? 
and uh, people sitting next to you could look at you and go, yep, that's you. You like to argue. You like to be on top. You like to win every argument. You like to be conceited. Why is that? Well, Paul says it's because people think that's going to bring them some happiness, some joy, some contentment. If you got to have the last word in every argument, you feel pretty insecure about yourself, right? And, that's, and no one who's insecure about themselves is someone who's truly happy. So he goes on, but verse 6, but godliness when contentment is great gain. Contentment. Contentment. Now, that's something to pursue in life, right? Contentment. And I want to tell you, Paul knows something about contentment because he makes it abundantly clear he's learned, and I love the fact that he uses the word learned. Over a period of time, over many life experiences, it's not like it just happened to him one night, but he's learned to be, he said, content in whatever condition I find myself. That, my friends, is what the world is looking for. That is what I'm looking for. That is, I'm sure, what you're looking for. Contentment that doesn't, listen, contentment that doesn't depend upon your money, your status, your relationships, your health. Because I want to tell you something, none of those are steady. Some of you are going to make more and less. Some are going to have good financial years and bad financial years. Some of your relationships, some months are going to be hitting on all cylinders, and some months you're going to be hitting a brick wall. Some of you are in great health today, but before the sun sets tomorrow night, you may have to go to the hospital or you may get a phone call from a doctor that tells you your life's never going to be the same again or the life of a loved one. Such is the world we live in. And so in trying to find contentment in this, in this what looks, appears to be a chaotic world where nothing is, is certain can be very, very frightening. And oftentimes what we do is we just sort of ignore all that and we pour ourselves into other things that we think will bring us contentment, be that, and he's going to talk about it, money, wealth, lust, greed, sin, whatever, because it numbs us a little bit and anesthetizes the pain of life, but it doesn't bring contentment. So Paul wants to bring the word that will bring contentment to these people. He says the reason so many of those people in this church are so unhappy and fussing and fighting and quarreling over stuff is that they've not learned real contentment. They're trying to find it somewhere else. They're wounded, they're hurt, they're scared, they're frightened. They're trying to cover that up. And so they're trying to act like, look, at the end of the day, I don't care who you are. You don't control your life. I think I told you I'm a history nut and geek, and I am. And um, the miniseries on the, on the Queen Elizabeth was so good. Uh, it started out, you know, she was just a young, young lady, a very young lady. You know, her father became king of England because his brother abdicated the throne. He was, her father would, never thought he would be king, therefore she never thought she would be queen, and she's the longest reigning monarch on the earth, obviously. Queen Elizabeth's still alive in her 90s now. But when her father became king, she was still very young in her teenage years and uh, assumed that he would live a long life, and she might become queen, you know, at 60 or 65. She never ever anticipated becoming queen at such a young age. But in this television or movie version of the story, here he is, the, the king of, of Great Britain, the, the, the largest empire in the world. You know, the sun never set on the, on the British Empire. 
uh, and he's also was the crown prince of India was his title, and, and you know all that that they, the the before the Second World War the um, and right after the Second World War the after the Second World War you know the British monarchy was at, at its height the British Empire was so huge. But her dad one morning woke up with a cough, and here he is the king of England and the monarch of Great Britain commonwealth, the money, the power, the prestige that goes with all of that. And the movie begins at this point with him in his bathroom in the quarters there where he was in the castle, and he's coughing, and he coughs up blood into the sink. If you know the story, he, he died not long after that with lung cancer. Doesn't matter if you're king of England. You get lung cancer, you're probably going to die, especially in those years, 50, 60 years ago, longer than that now. The idea that we can control our life, the idea that I can manage things, at the end of the day, we know it doesn't matter how much money we have, how much power we have, how important we are. We may wake up one morning and start coughing, and that's the end. You may have a loved one who doesn't come home. Somebody crossed the center line and hit them head on, and they're never coming home. We know in our heart and in our mind, we know that's the chaotic nature of this world, and so we try to compensate for that by acting like and making ourselves think we can control everything. You know, and we, sometimes we, we want to control our relationships. We want to control other people, and, and we want to have a sense of power and authority, and, 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 and we, we begin to argue. We begin argumentative. We begin quarrelsome, and we want to be in charge and all of these kinds of things. Or we just do the opposite, and we say, you know, it does none of it really matters. Why do I have to worry about anything? I'll just live every hour of every day as though it's my last and not have any sense of moral understanding and, and no sense of what might happen to me if I continue to... And Paul is saying all of that is because we don't understand where true contentment comes from. Paul is a man who's been arrested multiple times. He's a man who's been beaten by 39 Roman lashes five times. He's been shipwrecked. He's been snake-bitten. And he's facing persecution and he's facing death. And yet, he's like content. Is he nuts? Has, has he lost his mind? How can a man who's in a Roman prison and been beaten and nearly blind and facing certain death, how can he write about how? This is how you can have joy and contentment. Because he truly does. Because in the last few verses of this text, he's going to tell young Timothy, look, if you can just teach these folks in this church how they can find true contentment, they're all looking for it because life is so frightening and life is so unpredictable. And they're looking for contentment in a variety of ways. And here's how they can truly find it. But godliness with contentment is great gain. And then he says this, verse 7. And these are familiar words to some of you. You might be remotely familiar with this text. It's been quoted a lot, even in the secular world. If we brought nothing into the world, we'll take nothing out. That is so true, isn't it? I mean, it's obviously true, you know. Doesn't matter what you brought in, what what you gained. Even even the king of England, the king of Britain, it doesn't matter what he gained in this world. When he left, he didn't take any of it with him. If we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. But those who want to be rich 
fall into temptation, a trap which many foolish and harmful desires come from and which plunge people into ruin and destruction. And he says, verse 10, and this is that familiar verse that many of us know, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and had pierced themselves with many griefs. Now, I could spend a couple of sermons on that, and I'm not going to. We're going to go down to the next few verses. But before I do that, you have to understand, he says, the love of money, not money. You can love money and not have any, okay? That's the point he's making. You can have no money at all, but love it and crave it, and it can mess up your life. Or you can have a lot of money, like Zacchaeus did after he was converted, and be very generous with it and give it away and be responsible with it and not not be a curse. There are rich people in the Bible, Zacchaeus, Nicodemus, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, who gave his tomb to Jesus. Those were rich men, but they didn't love money. They had been blessed by it. There are others like Judas who had no money but craved it so much that he sold Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. What Paul is saying here is the love of money will drive you to do things because you think that the money will bring you contentment because that you think if I have money, I'll have control of my life, and you do not. Plus, you're never going to take it with you. It will not help you in all eternity. I think it was John Piper who told this story. He said, imagine this. It was, it was, he was saying, given a hypothetical situation. He said, imagine you're on a trans-oceanic flight, and up in the first class are some, you know, really wealthy celebrities, movie stars, have everything they want, have a whole entourage with them. Also up there in first class are some politicians who have a lot of political power and clout and authority. And then back in the economy class is a, a, young, a young lady who really barely had enough money to buy the ticket. She had to ask her friends and family to help her. But she's, she's actually going to a third world country as a follower of Jesus to work and serve among some of the most destitute and poor people in the world and let them know Jesus loves them and give her life serving them. And she's got really no money at all, just basically what she needs to get over there, and then she'll live in whatever housing they provide her. No one knows who she is. She's not famous or anything like that. But Jesus has sought her out, and she has repented of her sin, and she has called him as Lord, and he has written her name in the Lamb's Book of Life, and he's prepared a place in his home for her. And when she leaves this world, she will go and be with him. The others, on the other hand, have not done that. They've not prepared themselves. They've found their joy and their purpose and their meaning and money and fame and fortune and power and all of those things, but they've not repented of their sin. They've not made Jesus their Lord, and their name is not in the Lamb's Book of Life. And as the Apostle Paul says, they're an enemy of God by nature, and they are an object of God's wrath. And were they to die before they repented, they would spend all eternity absorbing the wrath, all eternity absorbing the wrath of a holy God. And all of a sudden, there's a tremendous explosion. The side of the plane is missing, and there's been a, a bomb. And in just a few seconds, that plane's going to be plunging into the ocean, and it'll all on board will be gone. At that point, which persons on that plane are the wealthiest? Which persons on that plane truly have contentment? At that point, all your money, all your power, all your influence doesn't do a thing for you. 
But what Jesus has done for that young girl assures her of eternal joy, eternal bliss, eternal security for all of eternity. So you can learn that no matter what happens, I can be content because of the sovereignty of God, because he has my life in his hands. And if it's a plane crash, if it's losing my finances, if it's losing a loved one, yes, it will hurt. And yes, it'll be challenging. And yes, it'll be difficult. But I'll not be there alone. And Jesus will walk with me. And he'll give me his grace. And, and I can do all things through Christ who strengthened me. By that, by that that's, don't miss, I wish I, I shouldn't spend this much time. That, that verse does not mean that I can run a marathon. You know, it doesn't mean that. I can't pray, Lord, I can run a marathon because I can do all things through Christ who strength. That's not what that verse means. It's not some sort of a... People use that all the time on things. And the context is that it's meaning whatever life brings to me, whatever is ahead of me, I can, I, can, I can endure it and I can be victorious in all of it, not because of me, but because of Christ who is in me. So I can stand here today and tell you, no, I'm 58 years old. I'm not in my health and my... my, my I'm not going to run a marathon. I can't do all things. That's not what that means. But I can tell you, no matter what happens to me today, no matter what news I were to receive today, I can handle it, and I can find contentment even in the midst of it because of Christ who strengthens me. Does that make sense? And he talks about the love of money. It's the root of all evil because money is a false sense of security. All those people on that airliner assumed that their life was secure and they knew where they were going, and, and yet they didn't control what happened when that airliner went down. Your money, you know, I go to auctions, and it's, it's, a, it's an issue in my marriage, uh, actually. Um, oh, because I, I come home with things that I don't need. Once I get to an auction, I just, I just sort of lose. I just love auctions. And so I go to auctions. If you don't hear anything else I say this morning, just tune in for a minute here and listen to this, all right? It was that one Thursday night. It was the state auction. You know, when you go to an estate auction, you're looking at somebody's stuff that they have, that they have acquired over the years. And I go through and I look at these bins if you've been to auctions, you know what I'm talking about. They have bins, and you look at them, and you, I, pulled out a, I pulled out a dish, you know, and it was jewel tea, if you know what jewel tea is. You know, it was a jewel tea dish. And, you know, she probably, when she got it decades ago, it was, and how many meals did she serve out of that, and how important was that to her? And then you go to a, another bin, and it's hand-stitched tea towels, you know, where she's embroidered these tea towels with days of the week, Monday, Tuesday, you know, and you look at it, she, she worked on those, and they were important to her, and, and, and she no doubt used them in her kitchen. And you go to another bin, and here's a, bless her heart, here's a whole collection of salt and pepper shakers, you know? And why anybody needs a thousand salt and pepper shakers is way beyond me. But she bought every pair of them someplace and brought them home and probably put them on the shelf, and they meant so much to her. And there it is on a hot Thursday night down in the river bottoms in Kansas City unair conditioned room, all kinds of people just milling around, trying to see what's the least we can pay for this person's stuff that they spent their life collecting. And a lot of times it gets down to, uh, I remember one time I was at one, and uh, he couldn't sell it. He had all these bins up here, these plastic bins full of stuff in it. You know, and then people just weren't interested in it, and he had to sell it, and he'd say, you know, $5 for the whole bin, 
$3 for the whole bin. And I goes, okay, who'll give me a dollar for the whole bin? And some guy in the back said, well, does it come with a lid? <laughs> and the auctioneer was like, yes. So basically the guy bought the bin, not what was in it, you know. And you're thinking, that's our stuff. At the end of our life, it, it comes down to who'll give me a buck for a whole box of stuff. It's worthless in many ways. Does that make sense? And so Paul is saying here, you know, pursuing money, pursuing riches, pursuing things in this life. You know, I like, I like to watch, uh, you know, old television shows, old game shows. And uh, you watch the old game shows. You watch the old... Um, uh, Let's make a deal. And some of you are so young, you're not going to know any of this. But you watch the old Let's Make a Deal. When I was a kid, you know, you pretend like you were six. You still in school. You like to watch game shows. And so uh, I watched Let's Make a Deal. And, and, you know, back in, and so you watch the reruns of these shows from the 1970s. And, you know, door number one, door number two, door number three, which one's the big prize? And so they win the big prize. And what do they win when they open up the door? First thing they win is this kitchen that's all in avocado, Right? So it's like all this avocado, this green appliances, okay? And this microwave that's like this big, you know, and, and you know. And, and then they win the, the television. They roll it out, and it's this huge console TV with this big cabinet, but the screen's only 27 inches, right? And it doesn't get the Internet. Trust me, you can't get Netflix on it, okay? And then they, they, that's not all. They also they open it up, and they win this Ford Pinto, okay, <laughs> literally, and he's like lime green. And, you're, and the whole audience goes crazy. And the lady that wanted is crying and weeping because this is the most beautiful stuff in the world. I'm thinking, you couldn't give that stuff away today. 30 years ago, it was really wonderful. And the stuff that you get all excited about in your house today, 30 years from now, for the most part, is going to be worthless. And my dear children someday are going to haul all my stuff to the auction house. And all that stuff I've collected, somebody's going to buy for a dollar a bin. Meaning and contentment is not found in the stuff of this world. It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, and by craving it, some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. You're trying to find contentment and happiness in the stuff of this world, and it's not there, and that causes us even more problems, more grief, and make us do more things and Paul's saying, just people have to understand that there's no ultimate joy found in that. And Paul knows what he's talking about because he owns nothing and he's contented. He's happy. He's joyful. He's in prison. How many of us here this morning are not joyful? You know you're rich this morning, right? I mean, you know that. You're wealthy. You're beyond you're, you're wealth, you're the wealthiest in the world. You think, you know, if I just had some money, hey, I got news for you. You got money. If you put yourself up against the six and a half or seven billion people on the face of this planet right now, and if you really put yourself, think about this for a minute. This will blow your mind. You put yourself up against every human that's ever lived on the face of the earth in all of recorded history. Do you realize if you live in Cass County, Jackson County, even Bates County, (laughs) that was a joke. If you live in the United States, you're among the one-half of one percent, one-tenth of one percent of everybody who ever lived. You're among the one-tenth of one percent wealthiest people who ever lived on this earth. And even today, those six or seven billion who are living, if you live in the United States, you, you are in the top 
2 or 3% of every human being. 97% of the people in the world would look at you and say, you are rich, and compared to them, you are. So why aren't you happy? If riches make you happy, we're rich. Compared to Bangladesh and Indonesia and most of, most of Africa and, and many parts of the rest of the world, to many people in China who are making all the stuff that you go to Walmart and buy, seriously, you're rich. Riches don't make us happy. We think, well, if I just had a little bit more, that's what Paul is saying. You're willing to, 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 to sell everything off to try to elusively find something that's never going to bring you contentment. If, if richness and beauty and fame brought happiness, then Princess Diana should have been the happiest person on the face of the earth. And you know she wasn't. Verse 11. But you, man of God. And he uses that phrase once again, man of God. There's only two times in the New Testament where that phrase is used. Both of them by Paul, both of them in these letters to Timothy. It's an Old Testament phrase that really means a warrior. It's a very strong phrase. And here is young Timothy, first church, ready to leave, ready to quit, overwhelmed, way too young, he, some people think, full, a church full of dysfunction. And Paul reminds him, look, kid, you are actually the man of God, so act like it. Don't listen to the adversary who tells you you're not. This is how he says, this is, this is the key to happiness. Aren't you glad you came? This is the key to happiness. Flee from those things that he just talked about and pursue righteousness, and then he goes on to talk about it. And I'm going to end with just fleeing from those things. You do not try to manage your sin. You flee from it. Paul says, these things that you think are going to make you happy, these things that you think are going to bring you joy and contentment, these things that, you know, you, you being argumentative, being in charge, trying to acquire wealth, lust, greed, whatever it is, sexual sins, all those things, addictions, those things that you're seeking to try to numb life or anesthetize the pain of life or give you some false sense of control, all of those things are going to make you unhappy. They're going to cause you to be more dysfunctional. They're going to cause brokenness in your relationships. And here's the thing, young man, oh man of God, first and foremost, to find happiness, you flee from those things. You run as fast as you can from sin. You don't try to manage it in your life. Many of us try to manage our sin. I'll do just a little. I'll gossip a little. I'll be critical a little. I can nag at my wife a little. I can be mean and rough on my kids a little. I can condemn the people in my church a little. I can look at these things on the internet just a little. I can, if you're an alcoholic and I've got addictions, you know, I can maybe do drink just a little. And we think we can manage our sin and manage our dysfunction. And Paul says, you don't do that. You run from it. You flee from it. You get away from it. It's a deception to think that you can actually manage your sin. As I said last week, the great theologian uh, out there, uh, <laughs> uh, now I can't remember. Oh. Huh? No, not Spurgeon. Uh, that would be nice. That would be, that would be good. Bob Dylan. That's what I'm trying to get. Bob Dylan, in his song, You Gotta Serve Somebody. 
It's going to be the devil or it's going to be the Lord, but you've got to serve somebody. And no truer words by any human being was ever spoken. You're either going to serve the Lord or you're going to serve Satan. And if you try to manage your sin, he's going to manage you. He's going to control you. And again, we think, I can just, you know, Paul says, look, young man, you've got to run from all those things I just talked about because those things will drag you down. They'll steal your joy. They'll rob your happiness. They'll they'll take away your contentment, and you have to flee from them. Sin is a pleasure for a season. Sin does numb us to the reality of life. That's why it's so prevalent. That's why drug addiction and alcohol addiction and and, and, and constant involvement in all kinds of dysfunctional sexual relationships with people and, and trying to find joy in, in, in our job or our career. or our fi- All of those things draw us in there because we're looking for some kind of contentment, and Paul makes it abundantly clear. Ultimately, none of it is found there. And you have to flee and run from those things, first and foremost. can't manage your sin, you have to flee from those things that cause you to want less of God and more of this world. Now, for each of you, I don't know what that is, and you don't really know what that is for somebody sitting next to you, but you know what it is in your heart. You know the things you pursue that make you want less of God and more of this world. You know the things that you pursue that make you love people less and love yourself more. Those things, he says, you should flee from. Familiar story. may have told it here. Probably have, but you probably forgot it. 19th century. County fairs across England. The man had the large, huge, gigantic constrictor snake that he would take to these fairs, and there was a big basket, and he would bring the snake out and let it wrap around his body, and everybody would be amazed and gassed, and then he would give the snake some sign of a signal, and the snake would release him, and then people would come and throw all kinds of money in the basket. And he made a pretty good living doing that, and he was quite popular, and everybody wanted to see this, and it happened time and time and time again, day after day, week after week, month after month, and even year after year. And he would just pack up his basket and his things and his snake and move to the next little city fair and do the same thing there. And he was making a good living at it, and he was popular, and everything was all right. And then one day, it was not anything unusual. There wasn't a storm. It wasn't anything that frightened the snake. It wasn't anything different about any other hundreds of times he'd done this. But one day, he stopped, and he was putting on his show, and he brings out the snake, and everybody's amazed, and he puts the basket there, and people begin to put their money in, and he lets the snake wrap itself around him like he always had, and everyone's aghast, and the money keeps falling into the basket, and then he gives the snake the signal, except on this day, the snake would have none of it. And so immediately the man begins to panic, and when he begins to panic, the snake constricts even tighter. And the people not sure if it's part of the show or what to do, don't do anything, and within a few moments, it's crushed him and he's dead. That's what sin does to us. Satan will give you the illusion that you're managing it just fine. You've handled your life just fine. You don't, it's really not that dangerous. You can stop it anytime you want. But the reality of it is, 
that you can't manage your sin. It will crush you. It'll destroy your relationships. It'll destroy your family. It'll destroy your joy. And so Paul says, he's an older man. He's lived his life. He says, young man, here's the key. You've got to flee from those things. You've got to run from them. You've got to run from them. And then he says, but you don't just run foolishly away. You run to something. All right? You run to something. It's not just fleeing. It's running to something. And I can't wait to unpack this for you next Sunday. There's a greater joy than any joy that any sin can bring you. I want you to leave this morning with this in your mind. He says, you've, you pursue Christ's righteousness. That, that may not sound like much to you in, in this, but we're going to unpack that next week in a way that will be sweet and wonderful and awesome because here's the reality. You ready? It's what John Piper says. The way to defeat sin is to pursue a superior pleasure. The way you and I defeat sin in our life is not by just being disciplined and saying, I'm not going to do it. That'll work for about a day for some of you. But it's to rather say there's some greater pleasure than this pleasure the sin is giving me. This, the sin of, of feeling like I have to be on top, that I have to win every argument, that I have to be in control. The sin that says my only joy is really going to be found in money or drugs or illicit relationships or whatever. This, those kinds of sins, Paul says, there's a greater joy than any of those. And first it begins by fleeing from those, but not just fleeing randomly, fleeing to something that's an even greater joy. And Paul's going to unpack that. And clearly he's talking about Jesus and the gospel. But in the way we unpack that next week, it'll be such a lovely picture of what real joy and contentment looks like. Father, there are some folks in this room who are, who are struggling with sin in their life and challenges and difficulties. There's some people in this room who are trying to manage their own sin, and they've been managing it for years, but Lord, help them get the reality today that they don't control anything. Lord, our joy and our contentment is not found in the way we think we can control our life and manage our life and handle life. Our joy and contentment is only found in relying on you. So, Father, today we confess our weaknesses in trying to find meaning and purpose in the stuff in this world that is really purposeless and meaningless while we overlook the true joy, the true treasure right before us, which is you. So, Father, if there's some here who don't know you as Lord and Savior, this is not going to make a lot of sense to them, but you can open their eyes and unclog their ears, and you can help them understand that their sin has an offense to you, and, and they are an object of your wrath, but if they would simply repent of that sin and receive you as Lord and Savior and confess you as Lord, that you would make them your child, and you would give them a new heart, and you would clean them up and you would give them your righteousness and they would have a home in heaven and a whole new avenue of joy, true peace and joy, no matter what happens. There's no cancer. There's no loss of a job. There's no disease. There's no separation from a loved one in death that can take away you from us. We can have your peace that the world can't give and the world can't take away. So if there's one here today who doesn't know you, I pray that this will be the moment when they would receive you and ask you into their heart. And for those of us who are your children, but we've tried to manage our sin and find our joy somewhere other than you, and we've put our faith and our trust in our own ambitions and our work and our relationships and our pride and 
our control. Lord, help us lay those things down right now and flee from them and run to you. In Jesus' name.